0: Dr. Amalia Gonyas malka welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Cape Town is Dr. Lisa Ustazen, who is a registered specialist obstetrician and gynaecologist, practicing at Cape Fertility in Claremont, Cape Town, as a fellow in reproductive medicine. She has a special interest in fertility, endocrinology, as well as recurrent pregnancy loss. And given that we are in World Infertility Awareness Month, the month of June, in conjunction with her line of expertise we having an appropriate conversation here. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me on to chat about some topics that are quite dear to my heart. As I mentioned, June is World Infertility Awareness Month. The World Health Organization has recognized infertility as a public health issue globally. Fertility rates in developed countries have decreased, in part as a result of women having greater access to education, contraception, family planning, as well as there being reduced child mortality. Now this view presents more of a controlled perspective of fertility. Infertility, on the other hand, is the inability to conceive or carry a pregnancy through to birth. So to start with, can you tell us what are some of the environmental factors that contribute to infertility? That's an excellent question. So when we're looking at environmental factors,
1: What I like to do is just break them up between men and women. So one of the things we always need to keep aware of is where we are in terms of our general health with the environment. So things that can influence from a woman's point of view, her chances of falling pregnant, can be related to lifestyle, such as her weight, any problems with being overweight, how much exercise she is getting. Because what we do know is when you are overweight, you tend to make a bit more insulin, and we know that it can be more difficult to actually fall pregnant. We know that smoking is not only from a point of view of when you are pregnant, but also trying to conceive. We know that women who smoke are more likely going to go through a menopause one to two years earlier. And so it can actually affect your egg reserve and so the amount of eggs that you have running out of those a little bit earlier. Obviously, using illicit drugs would not be a good idea while you're trying to fall pregnant. And I think just also from an environmental point of view, we need to talk about stress and managing stresses and the workload. Um, that women are now facing as they're taking a bit more of it and getting to the career world. From a male point of view, we've always got to think of the exact same things. We know that weight can influence how, how good a sperm sample is when we analyze it, so men who are overweight might struggle more with fertility. We know that smoking and excessive alcohol consumption can also impact on um, how good a man's sperm is, but might not be the difference between fertile and infertile but it definitely can mean that the sperm sample is a lot less motile so it's not swimming as much perhaps not as much in number and therefore it can actually affect getting pregnant.
0: So we've got similar environmental factors affecting both both women and men. One of the other elements I would say is yes. from an age perspective because as you mentioned in the introduction women have a, a finite reserve of eggs. And I think one of the challenges that we're seeing today is the the balance between work, life, career development and the juggle between career and motherhood has often been a controversial issue for women. Because if you want to climb the corporate ladder, invariably you are delaying some of your family life and starting a family later, whether it's about finding a suitable partner, uh, trying to ascertain and, and develop financial security... And we see that when women come out of, of a period of work, either to attend to children, that they end up with career gaps, which are often not easy to, to close again. Yes, no, definitely. So
1: one of the things we do always need to mention is the fact that women mm. do have a ticking clock when it comes to trying to fall pregnant. And I think a lot of people think about it as, oh, women always want to have children, the sort of clock idea of a biological clock is ticking and start thinking about, or, you know, she she's in a hurry to fall pregnant. But we actually need to think about it in terms of planning and spacing pregnancies. And one of the things that we bear in mind is the fact that women are born with a certain amount of eggs. They tend to run out of these eggs as they age. And this can happen across you know different women at different times. Some women might run out of eggs sooner than other women you're definitely a much lower chance of falling pregnant with a significantly reduced egg reserve, and that change actually begins when you get close to 35. By the time you're 45, the chances of you falling pregnant even naturally are are slim. And when it comes to fertility treatment, actually having to look at using donor eggs as an option for treatment. So just to summarize that, as we age our egg reserve, obviously declines of time, also our egg quality. When you hit 35, that decline starts to speed up a little bit more. When you hit 40, it speeds up quite significantly. By the time you're 45, you're definitely at a point where even the most advanced fertility treatment, we're probably not able to get you to conceive with IVF and we'd have to be looking at donor eggs, so using somebody else's eggs. So it's something that women do have to bear in mind, where their fertility potential is and what years are always going to be their best years for pregnancy. Now, obviously, we don't want women to say, well, oops, I'm turning 34, 35, better put a hold on everything else and start having babies. We're just asking women to be aware that when they're in their 30s, that this is the point where their fertility is going to change and to start perhaps asking questions about where they are and so are they fitting the standard mold? Do they still have a few years um, of fertility ahead of them? Or is this something they should be doing to try and expedite the process? Now, when you're saying expedite the process, obviously not every woman out there is going to run out, find a partner, or even use our
0: spring bank
1: and try and fall pregnant. We want to give women options for how they can take control of the decline in fertility as they age. And one of these things would be to discuss egg freezing. So, are you happy for me to just chat a little bit about egg freezing, then how that process works?
0: I think that's a really interesting dynamic because when you spoke about the idea of of options, it it is all about being able to to have choices. So, yes, please do let let's talk about some of the in- interventions regarding family planning. Perfect. So, we're all very good at knowing about contraception and how to avoid pregnancy.
1: We don't know as much about how to ensure future pregnancy. So one of the things that we can always chat about with our patients is the option of of freezing eggs. So the fancy term would be cryopreservation and the more colloquial term would just be freezing of eggs. So what we can do is an assessment. We can assess your egg reserve for how many eggs are actually left and what we think your reproductive potential is. We do an ultrasound and we're actually looking for the little follicles on the ovary, on the ultrasound. Those little follicles are like little egg factories and that gives us an idea of if we were to give medication to grow multiple eggs, how you would respond. With that information, we can then advise you on egg freezing. The process of egg freezing will involve some injections. Now, women always get very nervous when we say injections because they're associated with hormones. We're not actually strictly dumping you full of hormones. We're just giving you some of the, the pre-hormone signals to tell your ovary to grow as many of those follicles as it can. We ask all of those potential eggs that would have been stimulated that you would have actually lost that month, we ask those all to grow. So it's a series of injections that we teach women how to take themselves at home. We do a few ultrasounds so we can monitor how many of these follicles are growing, how big those follicles are getting. When they get to a certain size, we can assume that the egg inside is probably at the point where we can actually fetch it. We then administer a signal injection. Sometimes it comes in, the, in two separate injections, and that actually matures the egg, so it gets the egg ready for collection. We do a procedure. It's ultrasound-guided. It's anesthetic. Um, it's more of a sedation-ready than an anesthetic. We just make sure that our patients don't feel anything. We put a needle into the ovary where all the little follicles are and we suck all of the eggs that we've grown in that cycle. Those eggs can then be taken through to our lab, they clean them, prepare them, and then store them for future use. Now, the idea of having frozen eggs is not something that we think about if you're planning a pregnancy in the next year or two. It's something if you're not sure when you might want to be pregnant, if you're perhaps getting older, if you're having to delay pregnancy for career ambitions, or if you haven't met the right partner, you don't want to be forced into settling to have children, for example, with a current partner if you don't think they're the right person for you. So what these eggs provide is an option down the line to be able to fall back on your own or constantly be at the age that you were. So if you were 33 or 34 when you froze these eggs, the quality of the eggs will remain that of a 33 or 34-year-old. So if you come back in five or six years, for example, when you're in your late 30s or early 40s, We do an assessment and say there might be an issue with the quality of the eggs or the eggs that you do actually have when there's an issue trying to fall pregnant. We can then fall back on these eggs. So it's important to know that every single woman is different and how she responds to the treatment is going to be different. How many eggs we get out of every woman will be different. Generally, the younger you are, the fewer eggs we need. The older you are, the more eggs we will need. So when it comes to how many cycles you would have to do to get the optimal amount of eggs, that does vary from patient to patient. Most women can get away with doing one cycle. Some women will need to do two or three egg freezing cycles to build up a good quantity of eggs. But when you do want them down the line, when we thaw them out and then do the IVF procedure with those eggs, so we actually infect the egg with your partner's sperm or if there is no partner with the donor's sperm, we grow little embryos, which are potential babies, and we can then implant one or two of those embryos inside your uterus and hopefully within about 10 days we would test, we would hopefully be pregnant. But the idea is we don't want to just have, and say we've got 10 eggs, that's great, you will probably fall pregnant. We want to try and optimize your chances of falling pregnant because egg quality will differ. So at the end of the day, we do have some formulas that we use to try and work out according to how old you are, when you're freezing the eggs, how many eggs you need in order to have a successful pregnancy. So this is where the variable does come in. So this is not like a policy that you can go to your broker or if I get sick, I'll be taken care of. This is just the best chance you have when you are older, if you can't actually use your eggs because of poor quality, to say, well, now I have a backup option. I don't need to use a donor. I have my own eggs from when I was younger.
0: So if effectively, it's an investment into the future of being able to bank your eggs and to use them when you're in a position to do so.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. So it's giving yourself that extra option. And a lot of patients always sit in front of me and they say, I'm not sure whether I should do this. Is this the right thing? It feels like I'm going through a medical procedure and I might be for nothing. What if I never need those eggs? But the thing that I think about is it's always better to have done the procedure and to have those eggs as an option to fall back on rather than be 45, have not to have done the procedure when you could have done it and have no other option except falling back on an egg donor. So it at least gives you that option of another chance, another try in order to fall pregnant. Mm-hmm. We're not encouraging women in their 20s to freeze the eggs. We're just saying have a good look at the bracket that you're in. So if you're in your mid-30s and you don't think, you're going to be falling pregnant within the next year or two, then come and have a chat to us and we can always explain the whole process to you and and what the options are in the future.
0: And if I'm not mistaken, a while ago, I think I recall reading that some of the high-tech entities in Silicon Valley like Facebook and Google were actually providing free treatments for women to, to freeze their eggs so that they do have the option during their career to fall pregnant at, at a later date if they wish to.
1: Yeah, so that is definitely a thing and it's something that we are a little bit cautious about, because obviously it's wonderful when your company will pay for you to do that because you don't have any other financial burden or you know, to take on to actually go and freeze your eggs. fine line where women might feel pressurised that they have to do it, but they don't really want to. They might also feel pressurised if they're not supported to actually have a family. So if you are in a position it's a single woman in same case, a same-sex couple, in a heterosexual couple, and you decide, actually, I do want to fall pregnant, and your company is constantly promoting the egg-freezing route, you might feel that you are in a position to go and start building a family. So it is something that we are a little bit cautious about, as much as we would love companies to be able to support single women or women who are not ready to have a family yet. We want to make sure that it's not in a pressurized environment.
0: Very valid points. Dr. Ostezen, you are dealing with life on a, on a day-to-day basis, which is obviously very, very sensitive. COVID-19 has had an impact on absolutely every facet of our lives today. For people undertaking fertility treatments, it's an emotional period, it is time sensitive, it's often an expensive process. How is your organization, Cape Fertility, navigating these challenges through the various lockdown levels that we're currently going through? So, that's an excellent question.
1: Obviously, we're all affected by it. And our biggest concern for our patients, initially in the beginning, was what about our patients who are in the middle of treatment? What are our options for them? As well as the patients who we feel can't really afford to wait three months or six months until things are a bit more stable. So, in the very beginning, our patients who were on treatment, um, the Good milk care really was. We had to complete that treatment cycle and make sure that our patients were were safe in this environment. The safety measures that we had to take are safety measures that most businesses have been taking. So making sure that our patients check their symptoms in the morning before they come in, that so they rather don't come in if they're feeling ill. We're checking temperatures of our patients. We're asking everyone to wear face masks. We do have sanitizing stations. The doctors are all wearing work uniforms. We don't take home with us. We don't expose our at home to any exposures. So we're wearing eye goggles. We're wearing masks. So it, it's a little bit less personal. Unfortunately, when we meet a patient, but we make sure that none of our patients are exposed to us, essentially. We're also making sure also sanitized. Anyone who's going to have a procedure that requires an anesthetic, so whether it's a surgery or part of an IVF or an egg freezing procedure, they have to actually test for the coronavirus two days before the procedure so we can make sure that we're not putting anyone who's compromised under an anesthetic and putting them at undue health risks. So from that point of view, we've got quite a few safety measures. We're also looking very closely at any patients who we feel maybe should be having surgery at this time and only selecting the emergency cases to try not to much of a burden on our hospital that we work from. But then the other aspect of it is always our patients are concerned. What if I'm falling pregnant and I'm contracting the coronavirus. What is the, the implication for my fertility? What is the implication for pregnancy? And at the moment, this is still quite a evolving question where we have some information. We don't have all the answers, unfortunately. From what we can see, there is no impact on fertility. We can see that generally with most of our IVF procedures, we're able to actually clean any trace of the virus. Or for any of the samples, our lab has got very specific um care guidelines that we follow to make sure we don't contaminate any other surfaces or any other um, gametes that we get, so any sperm or eggs that we get, or little embryos that we are culturing. Um, And then from the point of view of pregnancy, like I said, it's still evolving. It seems in early pregnancy, there might be a bit of an immune protection that women who are pregnant receive. We know that there's a little switch in the way you respond to infection pre-pregnancy and during pregnancy. They might actually be protective from a symptom point of view. So early pregnancy still seems fine. Our only concern is if you're very ill towards the end of pregnancy with very high temperatures. We know that when you have a fever, you are more predisposed to go into preterm labor, maybe break your waters. And that's one of the things we are concerned about. So we do urge all of our pregnant patients to take those extra precautions. Make sure that they are excellent with their hygiene, not touching the face, avoiding people who are sick and seeking care early if they think they might be infected. There's quite a a big balance between all of the the health and safety checks and then also just managing the emotional concerns of patients who are coming into a medical practice. We are aware that we are asking patients to come in several times over the course of two or three weeks for the treatment to a medical practice in a building full of medical practices that might then obviously be escalating their risk. So as long as we're taking safety precautions, our patients are following the safety precautions we're giving them, at this point, we don't feel that there's enough reason to withhold fertility treatment from our
0: patients. That's excellent news that COVID hasn't impacted as as detrimentally on people seeking fertility treatments and with all of these stringent measures that have been put in place on, on safety and health. Today, we're talking to Dr. Lisa Ostesen, who is a registered specialist obstetrician and gynaecologist practicing at Cape Fertility in Claremont, Cape Town. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at WomanityTalk. Talk. Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro-soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates
1: prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy.
0: Dr. Ostezen, turning towards more of a personal perspective, what took you into the journey of of medicine, and more specifically to specialise in obstetrics and gynaecology? So I think I really am that cliché person
1: whose father was a doctor and whose mother was a midwife, and so was constantly surrounded by medical people and the impact that they could have on other people. So my drive to do medicine, I think, was definitely something from a young age that I learned from the role models in my life, seeing the impact my mother and father had um on our community and on their patients. And when it comes to obstetrics and gynecology, there, there are a few things that make this a unique field. So first of all, obviously, you get to work with women, you get to work with women in their time of need. There's nothing more of in that time of giving birth and being pregnant, and it's an opportunity for you to support a woman safely and bring new life into this world. So it really is a humbling and unique moment um, that you get to spend with that patient. Also, there are so many problems that women tend to overlook. We are very good at seeking health care when we need it, but a lot of the time we decide just problems, for example, painful periods or difficult periods, we think, oh, well, this is probably normal. I must just, you know, suck it up and carry on. So I want to be able to make a difference to some of the problems that were actually affecting women, affecting their quality of life on a day-to-day basis. Then from the completely different point of view of a medical specialty, and being interested in obstetrics and gynecology, it really is a unique field because you get to have a little bit of that adrenaline factor because you have emergencies that require you to react quite quickly but without the, the sort of trauma side of it. So a lot of people enjoy that a bit of adrenaline rush and they work in an emergency room or a casualty but at least with obstetrics and gynecology it's not self-inflicted and it's something that you can help another woman go through. Um, I think there's also a lot of room in gynecology for more women to be involved simply because I think we do have a bit of a unique understanding of what it's like to be a woman and some of the unique challenges that we face. So I also just wanted to be able to provide a service from a female point of view to other women out there who are looking for someone who can understand what they are going through.
0: So it's been part of the family business in inverted commas. We can hear the passion and enthusiasm in your voice. One of the things that I wanted to ask, and and this as you you spoke about having the woman's perspective, is that being a female doctor, do you think that your female patients feel more comfortable with you attending them to as women?
1: So I think that does vary, and it's got a lot to do with the the patient herself and what she is comfortable with. I think in a woman you tend. And a lot of things just because you've experienced them before. And if you've been pregnant before, you can relate to that. If you've gone through childbirth, you can relate to that. But I think we can't underwrite what a lot of our male colleagues can offer. I think it really does come down to the doctor individually. And a lot of our, my male colleagues I've worked with and definitely here at the practice are very empathic men. They really do care about their patients. And men that get into obstetrics and gynecology are usually there for the right reasons, wanting to empower women through difficult situations. So I think a lot of women are more comfortable with another woman and we do get a lot of requests to see one of the two female doctors at our practice simply because we are female. But then again, you also do get some female doctors who are quite cold and just as they are, lack empathy just because that's generally as a person. Um, But I think there's definitely a little bit of an edge as a woman what you can offer to your female patients.
0: Reflecting a moment on your career, can you share some of the milestones thus far and special moments or or achievements that have impacted you?
1: So career-wise, I think one of the, the more important things is obviously you go through medical school and it's a lot of training and you're exposed to a lot of different role models and a lot of different fields. But I think you really start to find yourself As a professional when you have to go through your internship years and your community service years and those are traditionally quite challenging years they're not necessarily always in an environment where you have a lot of support um i've spent my internship and community service in eastern cape so we didn't have a lot of access to sort of you know as much education and equipment and you didn't always have all the support that you would have liked to have at that point when you were training so i think Surviving those two years in a hospital that didn't necessarily have everything that you needed and you needed to learn to improvise was quite a molding experience from a medical point of view. I think my year that I spent in community service was probably the most pivotal in my career simply because I arrived there having just done obstetrics and gynecology as an intern. I felt most comfortable in that field, so I thought, well, let me take over the obstetrics here in Grand Horn Hospital. Now, that hospital was a handful of doctors and it relied a lot on the GPs in the town to provide a little bit of extra support. And I walked into a unit there that provided very basic support and I thought I can do better and I can give best to the woman in this community. And I spent a year and a half in that hospital trying to turn around that labor ward and make sure that we definitely had a great delivery rate, that our babies were coming out healthy, our mums were leaving pregnancy healthy, Any problems that we couldn't handle were identified early and the right plans were made for every patient. And I was very proud to say in 2010 that we were the only maternity unit in the Eastern Cape and we were recognized as this that did not have any maternal deaths. So not a single mother who died during pregnancy or the six weeks after pregnancy. So I think I definitely put in the blood, sweat and tears in that department and I was able to make a difference there. And a lot of that was actually based on the community's input as well. The minute you got passionate about something, and you try to uplift the skills of the staff there, the more they bought into it, and the more they tried harder. And we managed to establish quite a good pregnancy and gynaecology program in that grandson hospital. So that was definitely one of the the pivotal moments. And I think actually just having survived the rigorous training that we do as obstetricians and gynaecologists, another thing to get to the end of that training. It tends to be a four, sometimes five-year training period, long hours, because obviously it's not always staffed as well as you like. Um, babies come when babies come. You don't always have the luxury of scheduling You know when your deliveries happen. And it's a lot of hands-on practical training. So it's a lot of hours on the floor. It's a lot of weary bones. On top of all of that, studying to pass your professional exams. So having gone through that training, which is just, in its nature, very rigorous and having come out the end of it with the
0: degree is another really beautiful moment. And you have to go through that rigorous training because you are dealing with human lives here and the training necessitates that you are capable, that you're competent, that you've got the skills to be able to do your job. Uh, Well done on that impressive achievement of being able to, to turn around the hospital in Grahamstown. It also though Is a stark reminder between how we almost live in a parallel universe of an environment where you've got resources at an upper level and an environment where you have completely limited resources and how you try to cobble components together to provide effective healthcare that's true and that's something
1: that i think specifically in south africa we are very good at that i think perhaps other developed nations don't always have that same kind of experience. We're quite used to being in a situation where if you don't have, this is how we improvise and this is how we get around it. And at the end of the day, the good outcome for our patient or patients in the case of pregnancy is the thing that we are after. So we learn to be intuitive, we learn to be um, quite inventive in how we get around problems, and I think that's definitely a skill set South African doctors have and possibly why we're so sought after around the world, we can't do with difficult situations. I think COVID-19 has definitely shown that, where a lot of countries not using to make the kind of decisions that we're forced to make on a daily basis in um, South Africa, in our more sort of underprivileged
0: areas. Given what you know today, what would be your advice to younger women perhaps starting out and, and wanting to seek a career within the medical profession? I
1: would say, first of all, do your research and make sure that you know what you are getting into. It is a long haul and it's very easy to say oh, six years of studying and a couple of years of working afterwards. But I think you do need to understand the amount of sacrifice you will have to make in order to be a doctor and to have a career in medicine. I think it's very important to do job shadowing and not always job shadowing in a comfortable environment. It's very easy to go down the road to your GP and say, oh, can I please sit in? But I think you actually need to see what's happening in the hospitals. Probably not right now with the whole COVID epidemic, but when things get a little bit safer, it's really good to see the nitty-gritty day-to-day reality of what being a doctor is and not the grave anatomy that's on TV. I think be sure that you are ready for the sacrifice that you're going to have to make because there are many birthdays you will have to miss. There are many special occasions, friends' weddings, other important milestones that you're going to have to sit out on. I can count on one hand the amount of times I could go home for Christmas to celebrate with my family because I wasn't working. So you have to be prepared for that and make sure that your drive and your want to be able to provide health care is greater than the amount of sacrifice that you're going to have to make. And then another thing is I think you need to bear in mind that you need to choose your village, your people that surround you very wisely, because they're going to be your make or break while you need support. It's not easy during the long shifts. It's not easy to work an entire Friday, come home Saturday morning and go back to work on Sunday and work another full 24 hours. But if you have the right support, you can definitely make it through. If you choose a partner who's able to support you, support your career and support you when you want to be a mother and help you at home, then you're definitely setting yourself up for a successful career at home life balance.
0: I think those are all very practical words of of advice on the types of choices and and decisions one makes when you're uh, considering what career to take and the importance of having an adequate and appropriate support structure. Looking forwards to the future, one of the things that that I find is that our world is changing continuously. Um, The opportunities for women are are changing. Thinking with a, a gender equality lens In your opinion, what areas do you think we need to build on the most to benefit women optimally in the future?
1: Well, I think we need to look at it from a few different layers. Um, We're doing our best with an education point of view, and the baseline is always going to be education. Women need to be educated enough to know what their options are. Do you need to focus a bit more on exposing um, younger women to what's available in the work field? We don't want them to only think they have limited options in terms of what they can do with their life one day. We want to make sure that they are aware of all the different options and if something piques their interest, to be able to support their interests and to help them develop in that direction. We definitely need to make sure that women can access education on a tertiary level so that they can get the training that they need. and. I think that we do need to pay a bit more attention to making sure that we have adequate funding for underprivileged women, that they can specifically access the different fields they need from a financial point of view. And then I think the biggest thing that we need to to bear in mind is what are the obstructions to women staying in a career? And that's something that we can see in a medical field. You can see it in any high-powered pressurized field, whether it's law or any kind of demanding job. So I think we do need to have a look at what's available in the work structure to protect women so that when they do want to fulfill their other dreams, such as being a a family, that they don't feel that they're jeopardizing their career or they're jeopardizing their trajectory while they're moving on in their career. We need to sure that we've got the right plans and women are able to say, right, I need to now start with trying to build a family. and I'm going to need to be there for my child. And make sure that the work has the right setup to be able to support that woman through it should she need the extra time. And I think another thing we do also need to bring up is make sure that we've got enough fail-safe environment that women can actually survive sexual harassment. Because it's something we do need to be aware of. As more women are in the workplace and as we become more independent and more confident, obviously we need to be aware that sometimes you might get unwanted attention. And we need to have really good structure to make sure that any woman who feels unsafe or who feels that she's in jeopardy is able to voice those concerns and to be able to deal with that problem swiftly and quickly without feeling she's compromising her position where she's working or future career. And especially in this time of gender-based violence, I think we do need to bring
0: some attention to sexual harassment that can happen in the workplace. So true. E- everything on what what you've said there on being able to put in interventions in place uh, to aid people or women in particular in their career development. And if we consider the, the impact that COVID-19 has had, where we're seeing people work very productively away from the office, that these are potentially the types of measures that could be in place. And as you say, gender based violence is an absolute yeah. scourge on on society and we need to look at interventions to limit or eliminate um, sexual harassment in the workplace Dr. Ostazen it has been a pleasure talking to you we are unfortunately coming to the end of our show today so lastly as we close out the conversation could you please share a few words of inspiration for youth month to pass on to girls and young women in Africa that are listening to the show today
1: Definitely. So I think one thing we want is you are not defined by your gender, That anything that you set your mind to, you can achieve. And I can list many women that I've surrounded myself with that have been my role model who have done that exact thing, brought themselves out of a difficult situation, out of it against all odds and persevered and able to achieve their dreams. The important thing is to find something that brings you joy, something you are good at, something that you can build your your skill set and explore your skill sets and be able to try and contribute and make a difference in this world. If you can find that thing that you are good at and you are passionate about, then absolutely nobody, regardless race, gender, anything can stop you. As long as you put your, your head down, you focus on your goals, you set out a path for yourself, make sure that you surround yourself with the right team to support you and you'll definitely reach your goals
0: great words of wisdom there and advice thank you for joining us today it's been a pleasure having you on the air to talk about not only your field of of expertise but also to to share some of your personal experiences on your development as a doctor in the field of obstetrics and gynecology
1: thank you so much for having me on it's been so lovely chatting to you
0: you have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Dr. Liesel Ustazen, who is a specialist obstetrician and gynecologist practicing at Cape Fertility in Claremont, Cape Town.